Hello and welcome to episode 132 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi. My guest today is Marissa Moorman, professor in the Department of African Cultural Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Moorman is a specialist in Angolan studies, Southern African history, and African media studies. She's the author of two important books, both published in Ohio University Press's New African History series. The first was Into Nations, a social history of music and nation in Luanda, Angola from 1945 to recent times. And the second, more recently, was Powerful Frequencies, Radio, State Power, and the Cold War in Angola, 1933 to 2002, which came out in 2019. She has also published numerous chapters in scholarly collections and articles in the Journal of African History, African Studies Review, Radical History Review, among others. Dr. Moorman has also received Fulbright and ACLS fellowships and is an editor of the prestigious Journal of African History, as well as an editorial board member of the popular website, Africa is a Country. Welcome. Hi, Peter. It's great to be here. So how did you become an Africanist? And as an American, I'm also interested in learning more about why you chose to work in Angola, a Portuguese-speaking region in colonial times, and also one sadly ravaged by war uh, for over two decades? Uh, that's a great question and one that I uh, often hear. And I have, uh, I have, I have a couple of answers. Um, so I got started being interested in the history of the African continent in general uh, as a young person, because I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago in a totally white suburb. Uh, but my aunt was an anti-racist activist who lived in California. My cousin is mixed race. And I would say that my parents were anti-racist in praxis, in practice, um, though they were not activists. And so I had this very tense relationship with my peers at school who were often telling racist jokes and making racist comments. And I didn't understand where that came from. And as I started to study U.S. history, I began to understand that that was related to this longer history of a relationship between the United States in part and the African continent that happened through the process of the transatlantic slave trade. And so I, I became sort of, that was always a, a preoccupation for me. And then when I was in college in the mid 1980s in Washington DC, Reagan was in the White House. Uh, I arrived on campus at, at Georgetown University in 1986 1985 had been a huge year, as you know, of anti-apartheid protests on American university campuses. And I felt that I had missed out on that, but I, I got involved in different student organizations, um, political, some involved in Southern Africa. And I spent a lot of my weekends in college in general on the mall in Washington, DC, protesting US intervention in Central America and particularly in Southern Africa. And in that context, I learned about um, the US support of UNITA and of Savimbi in Angola. And that's what put Angola in particular on my mental radar. I was studying English, I was a literature major, but I took classes in African history 
um, in the in the history department. I think I maybe had a minor in history, and I was quite interested um, in African history, and that eventually took over my preoccupations. But I think some of my earlier interest in literature, in cultural expression, obviously comes out later in my in my work in the focus of my research. So were you able to go to Angola uh, before you started your career as a graduate student initially, or is that something that you developed uh, uh, while at university also? I was not able to go to Angola. I happened, I was in Zimbabwe in 1992 for a year working on a volunteer project and there was an election going on in Angola. So I was watching it through um, the Zimbabwean newspaper. And in fact, when I showed up in graduate school in, in Minneapolis in 1994, my advisor, Ellen Isaacman asked me, so have you been to Angola? And I said, no. And he said, do you speak Portuguese? And I said, no. And he said, do you own Jerry Bender's book, Angola under the Portuguese myth and reality? And I said, yes, I do. <laughs> So that's how it started. It's not sort of a typical or even recommended trajectory um, for, you know, developing a, a, a dissertation project, but uh, I made it work. So, and I feel lucky that I was supported and that, um, and that Alan encouraged me to actually work on Angola, despite the fact of not having had experience there. And of course, Alan Isaacman, a, a luminary in the field of African history here in North America, uh, but in particular, the history of Portuguese-speaking uh, Africa. And your first book, uh, Intonations, remains essential reading, and I should add listening, because it comes with a beautiful CD that we'll play a selection from shortly. Uh, for anyone interested in the social cultural, political history of Angola. And, you know, you have become one of the, the most insightful interpreters, I think, of this history, the connections between popular culture and politics, and particularly in Southern Africa. And in the book, you took a, a, a kind of straight up social history approach showing how, or you know, doing bottom-up history, um, showing how ordinary men and women made music, but also imbibed in music like Semba uh, in Luanda's shanty towns. And you also did a really nice job of showing how this popular culture created a sense, a shared sense of being Angolan in a way that maybe even the political entrepreneurs uh, that were fighting the, the colonizers weren't able to do. And you you, so you started from this uh, fascinating approach, and then in your most recent book, uh, Powerful Frequencies, um, you took a very different approach. You're, this was more of a kind of um, top-down history meets media studies. That's kind of how I saw it, and much, much more interdisciplinary in many ways. And um, you show how this, this uh, radio technology was used both by the colonial state um, uh, to sort of project their power and, and authority, but also by the Angolan uh, nationalists to challenge uh, imperial power and later to advance their brand of, of African socialism. So you've, you've had this uh, amazing uh, two decade long uh, engagement with Angolan history and culture and politics. Can you tell us how this fascinating intellectual trajectory unfolded? Gosh, uh, that's a difficult question. Let's see. So as I said, I, I went to graduate school, uh, committed with this idea that I really, really wanted to study Angola 
Alan, my advisor had said to me, oh, you'll go to Zimbabwe since I had been there, as I just told you. And I said, no, I want to go to Angola. And we had that conversation about Portuguese and had I been there and, and books. So I, I went about my graduate studies. And um, it was interesting that in whatever it was, for, I think four years of coursework, uh, I encountered on the syllabi in the classes that I was taking, I think only once did we read a text about Angola. Uh, and that was Joe Miller's Way of Death which was in a class on the history and historiography of the of the slave trade. And that signaled to me that there really wasn't social history being written about Angola that was relevant or that would make its way onto a syllabus at a North American university. So that sort of continued to foster my interest and my desire to do work that was social historical in nature. Of course, I studied with Alan Isaacman. I studied with Jean Allman, also a, um, a renowned social historian, and with the late and very amazing Susan Geiger. And they very much shaped my, my training and the direction of my interests. And so I was really interested in telling uh, a bottom-up story and in, in talking to people about their experiences of nationalism, of the national liberation struggle, and of its relationship to popular culture, because I had I was interested in popular culture more generally. As I said, I studied literature as an undergrad, and I was quite interested, in fact, in um, things like reading Bakhtin and Chaucer and the Wife of Bath's Tale and things like that. And and I was interested in these sort of you know what are kind of popular forms of expression, and how do regular folks experience big political events. So that was driving my interest. When I got to Angola for the first time in 1997, I had basically a small fellowship, which was to study film. And I wasn't, I knew I wasn't gonna be able probably to write a dissertation on film and there were not the, I couldn't find the sources in Angola and that wasn't a surprise. I started talking to people about what might be possible, what were the forms of popular culture, that were significant, it was, became immediately clear to me that music was really important in people's lives in 1997. I could, I would go to the archive and I would sit in the archives library and read things and I, and the power would go out and yet the, the battery operated radio at the barbershop across the street was still playing music. Women uh, who were selling things on the street, food, uh, cases of Coca-Cola and things like that would walk up and down the streets singing women selling fish early in the morning would, you know, would call out the names of the fish and things like that. So that the, the importance of sound and of music became immediately apparent to me. So that when people started saying to me, oh, music was incredibly important in this period of time around the, the period of the liberation struggle and the anti-colonial anti struggle, it made complete sense to me. And, and people said nobody had really studied that yet. And when I started to look for the music, I realized there wasn't very much of it available at all in the late 1990s. So that's sort of how I got interested in music in particular um, and its relationship with the political struggle in Angola. And I was uh, obviously, you know, I mean, I, I spoke to local historians, other local figures, writers, people that I met, and, and those are the people that got me interested and drew my attention to the significance of music in particular. Maybe this is a good time to give the listeners a taste of uh, the kind of music that you uh, both analyzed, but also rescued, in a sense, from oblivion. Um, we are going to listen to a little bit of Poema do Semba by Paulo Flores. Mm -hmm. 
This is on the CD that accompanies Intonations by Marissa Mormon. Okay, we resume now after the wonderful music by Paulo Flores, one of my favorite uh, Angolan musicians. Um, so tell me about your experience then researching this book, because, of course, the civil war in Angola ended in 2002, but a very difficult place to do research. And you strike me uh, as a very tenacious person to, uh, uh, and, and a persistent researcher. Um, tell me about that experience and then also how maybe that informed your more recent uh, book on the history of radio and state power during the Cold War. Well, as you note, uh, there was a civil war going on until 2002. I did the bulk of my research uh, between 1999 and two th 2002. So the, the research trip that I was just describing in 1997 was sort of a, a preliminary research trip. I was in Angola for about nine months um, through a tremendous amount of luck and just meeting people who helped me out. I was, I was able to stay for, for a good long time. I returned to Minneapolis, took my exam. So it, it really wasn't until after I took my prelims that I had, or until just before I took my prelims that I actually traveled to Angola. And then I returned to Angola in 1999 and left in 2002, in May of 2002, just one month after the signing of the peace accord. So for the entire time that I was doing research for my dissertation and this first book, there was a civil war going on in Angola. And that obviously shaped my experience of, of life in Angola. And it, um, it shaped my interest also in the war and in trying to understand um, how the war impacted life across very many years. Because first, Angolans fought a very long anti-colonial war from 1961 until 1974. And then the civil war broke out pretty much immediately after independence was declared in 1970, in the end of 1975. And that war continued until 2002. So that, that obviously had a huge uh, impact and influence on the shape of life, um, on music and on, on economy, on politics and everything else. That it made it apparent to me the significance of the 
the ruling party in in that instance, in this instance, the MPLA, which has been in power since 1975. They're obviously clearly incredibly important. And while with the first book, I was bound and determined to talk to normal folks and to take a, a grassroots um, approach to the study, it, became, it was clear to me that the, that the state in Angola is incredibly important. And that while there is a lot of political science literature on the Angolan state and a lot of analyses of politi political economy, there aren't necessarily as many historical studies of the state. There's historical studies of the MPLA itself as a party and how it's developed incredibly important work by Christine Messiant, by um, Jean-Michel Mabekotali, by Marcelo Bittencourt, um, among others. But there wasn't sort of other historical work looking at the post-colonial state. So I got interested in trying to think about the post-colonial state and in part in thinking about um, some of what it managed to do while people really often tend to focus on its failures, um, including Angolans themselves. I was sort of interested in other stories that I began to hear when I started to talk to people about radio. Radio was obviously something that musicians spoke to me about in talking to me about my first research project and book. Uh, musicians underscored how important colonial period radio had been in promoting their music, despite the fact that they were anti-colonialist in sentiment. The music often couldn't be so explicitly, but the, um, so it could be played on the radio and the radio was incredibly important for them um, to have their music known, to have it played and for people to be able to listen to it, obviously. And that's part of what inspired my interest in, um, in the history of radio itself. But there was also this other sort of emerging story of the importance of the radio station itself after independence to uh, everyday life in Angola. So people would talk to me about the 1 p.m. Uh, news broadcast every day and how important that was. And we also see it, it's all over Angolan literature, um, literature produced after independence. And so it became, it was clear to me that radio had a really important, was playing and had played a really important role in Angolan life and in, um, in daily life and in political life. That's one of my favorite chapters in the book. Uh, I think it's chapter four, where you chart this history of the national radio station as kind of a, a, a a successful example of a, of a high-functioning state institution uh, under the, the Marxist-Leninist MPLA. Um, where did you find the evidence? Obviously, interviewing individuals, you know, sound engineers and, and um, officials and so on was part of it. But um, tell the listeners uh, some of the sources that you had to go and dig for and, and where you found them to chronicle this history of the national radio station in Angola. I had to look all over the place. Uh, I started, so in the first book, I really was focused, it's, it's heavily, relies heavily on interviews and on uh, some archival material. In the second book, I traveled to, to many different archives. Um, in the chapter that you mentioned, which is also probably my favorite chapter, in part because it has the oral historical material and the interviews in it. And I, and I tried to show the radio from the point of view of the people that were working there. 
I, um, I spoke to lots of people and then I, I, I went to many different archives. I went to several, many more archives in Portugal than I had visited before. Portugal has a wealth of archives and in particular, the archives for the late colonial period are fascinating um, and I'm always learning something new about them. So I spent a lot of time in the secret police archives, which are located in the National Historical Ar Archive in Portugal. And I also worked in the military archives in Angola, I worked at the uh, Association Chiweca de Documentación, the Chiweca Association um, and Documentation Center, which is based around the, what was the personal archive of MPLA leader Lucio Lada. And they also have collected a lot of other material, but, but Lada was the best um, and the main archiver of the party's material and other material from the late colonial period and after independence. So that's a really, really important archive for me. And then I, I worked, I tried to work in and at the radio station, which has not exactly an archive per se. They have a documentation center, which was basically a pre-internet library where journalists could go to look up materials. Say they were doing a broadcast on Mali, for example. So they could go and find a notebook and learn about contemporary history in Mali or other significant uh, details about Malian social life or Malian politics, for example. The documentation center had very, very little material on the radio itself. It had just one slim notebook or one slim binder with some clippings from the press and some other things. There weren't actual radio documents themselves. I also worked in the sound archives, which is an archive of radio broadcasts from the radio station. But I learned pretty quickly in looking at those that the primary category, the primary reason that something wound up in the digital archive had to do with um, political power, right? So every speech by the first, by Angola's first president, Agostino Neto was there. Every speech by the second president, Jose Eduardo dos Santos could be found in the sound archive. Some other things when Castro, when, when um, Fidel Castro would visit Angola and he would give a speech that would be recorded. Visits by other officials, Kenneth Kaunda, um, South Africans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, but there wasn't an archive, for example, of any of the regular programs that would have played or the things that people talked to me about. So there wasn't this really fantastic sounding um, based on when people said radio drama called um, Crime Doesn't Pay, O Crime No Compensa. And uh, it was like a, a police, you know, it was like a criminal radio drama. And I only found maybe a minute of that show and it was recorded, it was, you know, kind of, pieced in with something else, somebody's speech or something. And I happened to catch a minute of the show, um, which allowed me to say something about what it sounded like, something more than what I had heard from some of the people who had acted in the show. Um, but that was a kind of fascinating thing. And I also discovered in that room, which is the Sound Archive, which is a, a small room in the basement of the National Radio Station, that there were some old bookshelves with a bunch of things on them. There were old manuals for Phillips, uh, recording equipment. There were some old manuals of what looked like probably ag agricultural extension work from the late colonial period. And there were piles of binders sitting on the floor. And because they'd just been sort of left on the floor, I assumed that I could look at them. Nobody said I couldn't. So I started going through some of them and I realized it was communication between the headquarters 
of the MPLA, the ruling party, and the directorship of the radio station. So I'm sort of going through this stuff and there's some interesting things and a lot of not very interesting things. You know how historical work is. There's often more not interesting stuff than there is interesting stuff. So I'm going through this and the director of the documentation center passes by because I was outside trying to get natural light and I had set up a bunch of these like kind of the old school desks or chairs with desks attached to them that were down there because obviously they're not set up for, for researchers, right? So I had set up this thing and I was photographing some stuff and he said, oh, what's this? And he closed the top and he said, oh, no, 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 you can't look at this. Um, this might have, you know, secret information, dangerous information in it. And I said, well, you know, I spoke to the director of the radio station and he told me I could look at any of the materials here. And, um, and to be honest with you, with you, there's nothing very exciting in here. Only the fact that, you know, journalists are skipping out on the ideological education classes run by the party headquarters. Um, and that's not surprising or scandalous. But he was insistent that I no longer, you know, that I, that I not look at that anymore. He didn't take it away, but he watched me close it and put it away in the other room. And then he kept checking on me for the following days. I made an appointment to talk again to the director of the radio station and was passed off to his um, second in command to whom I made the argument um, about, you know, documentation and, and normal periods of um, waiting before documents are made available um, to the public. And, and he didn't buy my argument. Um, and he said it was basically better not to, to look at that material. And so I had to leave that material aside. And what I took from this was that there's a tremendous amount of nervousness in the current regime over, over the past, about the past, which is not surprising. Um, but it, it paralleled to me a kind of nervousness that I saw also in the archives of the late colonial state, particularly in the military archives and the secret police archives. So that was a very long answer. But really interesting. Uh... One of the things I was thinking listening uh, to you speak is how, despite the fact that these were sound recordings, uh, they were very much representative of the institutional bias that state archives contain. And so, uh, you know, that, that, that you only had a minute of the radio drama, but you had every boring political speech <laughs> of the period meticulously recorded, preserved and ready for access, I think is, is quite telling. Uh, so there were no sports broadcasts, no soccer matches. I don't think there were soccer matches. No people, you know, as you know, cause you read the book, there are, there was a lot of discussion of sports and there was a lot of sports broadcasting that went on. That was really, really important in Angola and to Angolans, but there, there, I don't remember finding recordings of that. There may have been one or another. Maybe music a, shows. There were also not recordings of the music shows. There weren't recordings even of the, the longest running shows. For example, a show done by a man named Antonio Fonseca, which is the longest running radio show called Anthologia or Anthology, which is about Angolan folk tales and, and Angolan stories. And neither could I find a recording of that. Now they have a whole sets of reels of older stuff, but they don't have the machines anymore to play them. So those were inaccessible to me. Uh, what had been digitized was a much obviously smaller set of materials. And, and as I said, the priorities were obviously those that had to do with uh, containing and representing political power and, and particularly um, presidential material. And the MPLA, the MPLA 
in its party headquarters also has its own archive, but I've, I failed to be able to see anything there, I, which is not to say that I, I um, didn't spend time there. I spent time there, but I didn't get to see any of the material that, that they have. And what the sense that I got in from that archive, the MPLA party's headquarter archive and the sound archive and this pile of notebooks that were just thrown on the floor in the sound archive was that there's a sort of interest in a, 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 maybe a cultivated disinterest in making those documentary aspects of the past available to people or easily available. And so the contestation over the past continues. And another favorite chapter of mine is the one where you document the history of guerrilla radio. Uh, you chart the MPLA's uh, Angola Combatente you, and, and uh, what was it? The Voice of Free Angola of the FNLA. And then later in the book, you also had this marvelous uh, piece on uh, UNITA's uh, radio station, uh, Radio Vorgan. And, and that was, of course, funded in part by the United States and um, apartheid South Africa. Uh, how were those broadcasts different from the kind of colonial state um, broadcast, maybe even the, the broadcast of white settlers in Angola? That's a good question. Let me give you a little chronology or give the listeners a little chronology first. So radios really starts in the hands of non-professionals, of hobbyists, of amateur broadcasters in the 1930s. Those people are, are white settlers, Portuguese settlers who have settled in Angola, who use radio for, you know, the very obvious reasons to be able to stay in touch, in particular with each other in Angola, which is a very large place, 16 times the size of Portugal. So we have these settlements that are dispersed. And, and so settlers are trying to stay in touch with each other. And they're also obviously trying to stay in touch with people in the metropole. Although I would say there was, there was a lot of emphasis of really on staying in touch among those different populations. And also they listened in, for example, to radio being broadcast from Mozambique to radio being broadcast from South Africa. So they, these amateur radio broadcasters eventually develop what are known as radio clubs. And there, there's at least one in every uh, province of Angola in the colonial period. And that's really how radio gets its start in Angola. And the colonial state comes to it belatedly. They really only start to think about opening up a national or a colonial broadcaster in the 1950s, in part in response to uh, Portuguese dissidents in World War I, or I'm sorry, World War II who are broadcasting from neighboring uh, Congo Brazzaville, as well as other concerns with um, dissidents in, in Portugal and in the, in the colonies in general. So their interest is quite, quite specific. It develops over time then, then of course, by the late 1950s and early 1960s, the colonial state and the colonial broadcaster are worried about uh, the formation of nationalist movements in Angola and in the other Portuguese colonies. So those are, that's, I think it's really important that radio starts in the hand, outside the hands of the state. And, and that's part of what I wanted to look at in the book um, and these white settler communities. And then the, the state gets involved. The state is notoriously really bad at broadcasting, really boring, the prop, their propaganda is terrible. Once the nationalist movements form and the war starts in 1961 and they are, they are forced into exile and they uh, basically have no 
other options than taking up arms. They began broadcasting themselves and the MPLA is really a pioneer in this. They start broadcasting uh, earliest from Brazzaville, later from Dar for a brief period of time, and then from Lusaka, the FMLA broadcasts from Kinshasa. Um, the MPLA adds another, uh, oh no, I said Lusaka. After that, then um, UNITA only begins to broadcast after independence. In any case, the FNLA and the MPLA begin to, to broadcast uh, mostly propaganda, obviously, you know, they're talking about the war, they're trying to inform Angolans about what's happening with the war, because there's largely a news blackout, there's a tremendous amount of censorship about the the, the anti-colonial war as it's happening throughout the 1960s and early 1970s. The MPLA does a lot of that kind of broadcasting, they're also broadcasting about um, critiques of, of, of Portuguese politics, of fascism, they often broadcast things that explain very clearly that they're fighting Portuguese fascism and not Portuguese people. They try to make you know, these kind of important distinctions. They, they broadcast appeals to Portuguese troops um, who are either Portuguese or Angolan to desert the, the, colonial, um, the colonial army and to join their forces or simply just to desert. To desert. They try to argue to those Portuguese troops that they're, they're, they're not fighting for the common, common Portuguese person's interest, but they're fighting for the interests of the fascist state, et cetera, et cetera. The FNLA, on the other hand, does some of that kind of broadcasting. Obviously, they're also fighting a war, but a lot of their broadcasting is also driven um, to an audience of Angolans in exile in the Congo. So it's, it has more of the flavor of a community radio. So the announcement of um, gatherings during the Christmas holidays and things like that, um, or announcements about um, support for people who want to put their kids in school and things like that. Um, announcements of gatherings of, of religious communities and things like that. The MPLA has a little bit of that, but not nearly as much as, as I found in the archives about the FNLA. And, um, and those broadcasts become very important. It's obviously illegal for Angolans living inside the territory to be listening to those broadcasts, to be tuning into them, but they do so anyway. And so some of the richest and I think most interesting archival material I found had to do with people being caught listening to these stations of the MPLA, MPLA and FNLA during the, the liberation struggle. But they, they have quite diverse programming. The MPLA also plays some music, some music by Ngola Hitmush. Um, I didn't find so many traces of that in, the, in archives related to the FNLA. And I also had trouble um, finding anybody from the FNLA that would talk to me about the history. Um, and the story of, of UNITA is obviously one that happens after independence. And there, there's also a huge amount of propaganda because they're fighting a civil war. They're supported by the US and by South Africa. Um, they spend a lot of time calling out the Cuban presence in Angola, um, making attacks on foreign support for the MPLA, describing the MPLA as not being representative, not democratic, et cetera, et cetera. And also then late in later years, calling out international figures who are involved in negotiating peace in Angola, like Dame Margaret Nancy. It's a, an incredible story that you tell, this connection between radio and uh, resistance and, and political power. And uh, last year, there was a fascinating edited volume, which you contributed to. Uh, if listeners are interested in reading a, a 
kind of interdisciplinary regional uh, text on this topic. It's entitled Guerrilla Radios in Southern Africa, subtitled Broadcasters, Technology, Propaganda Wars, and the Armed Struggle, edited by uh, Sekiba Lekwati, Chepo Moloi, and Aldaromao uh, Shoteshaide. Uh, probably mispronounced that last name. Uh, but it looks at not just Angola, but Mozambique and Namibia and Zimbabwe and, and South Africa. So this is clearly uh, a rich vein in, in some of the new scholarship that's coming out on um, Southern Africa and, and history and politics. Now, you, you don't just uh, uh, publish these uh, great books and, and journal articles and so on. You also have this kind of public-facing uh, writing and engagement, uh, for example, through your work with Africa as a Country, and I'm curious, uh, what drives your uh, engagement with this kind of public scholarship? And also, how has it been received by fellow academics? The, the, the forever question about digital right engagement and online and public forms of engagement is always like, how, how, how do other academics look at this work? First, let me say, uh, part of what drove my interest was, was first meeting Sean Jacobs, who invited me to contribute to Africa's country back in 2011, 2010, 2011, when I was doing research on the radio book and I was in Angola. And so he said, you know, if there's things that come up, if there are things that you want to write about, reach out. So I did that. And that's how I, I got started. Part of it for me was that having spent so much time in Angola, I pay a lot of attention to contemporary Angolan politics, contemporary Angolan culture. So there are always things that I'm thinking about that don't necessarily enter into the research that I'm doing. And so it provided me a place to think about those things and also to write about Angola in a way that's more accessible and to get Angola on people's radar that where where it might not necessarily be otherwise around questions like music certainly the overwhelming representation of angola in the united states is one of civil war perhaps more recently one of arising a, a and now um declining petroleum economy but i was interested in getting other ideas about angola out there in the world in english in particular so that's sort of how i got involved and then i just got more involved in the in the in the blog itself and I'm, I've now been on the editorial board for a long time, and I, it's been a while since I've written anything. I've done a lot more recruiting of other writers, which is important, and, and it feels like that's also a good way for me to bring Angolans that I know, young Angolans that are working on these questions, make their work available to perhaps a different audience than, than they typically have, um, and bring other writers to the conversation in the, in, in the US in particular. So that's been really important. Um, and I love working with Africa as a country because it's just a, a fantastic group of people. And even though we're not often physically together, and this was true even before the pandemic because we write from different places, um, we always do try to get together and there's a lot of really excellent camaraderie and I've just met fantastic people through Africa as a country. So I'm, I'm and I feel like, Sean's doing really important work and there are ever new um, sort of horizons of stuff. Boima's radio show is really great. Um, and we've now got um, South Africa-based folks doing a lot more sort of video production. Um, and Sean and Will have that the AIAC talks, which I think were, for me at least during the pandemic, really vital and really, uh, really, really fabulous and brought in lots, lots more contributors and gave us a new, a new form in which to do that. 
So how has it been received by other academics? I think other academics, one is, one is other academics, um, two is the inst institutions that we work in and whether or not they recognize that form of labor. I would say other academics have been largely supportive. In some ways, maybe it's perhaps brought my work to people that wouldn't have read it otherwise. Uh, in terms of institutions and how institutions recognize or not this work, I, that is, as I said, the opening to response to this question, an ongoing struggle and problem. I think it's not clear. I think there's increasing recognition that it is labor, but I think it's not clear how to evaluate it. I think we haven't, you know, institutions haven't come up with um, criteria necessarily yet, or at least the ones I've been at, to evaluate and decide how this might be important. I think there's increasing pressure on academics to do public forms of writing, and yet there's very little recognition that in, that includes extra labor, um, and that public-facing writing can be scholarly. It can be intellectually uh, robust. But I think that so I think that's an ongoing issue, and it's and it's quite hard to define that. And I think I think we're just increasingly asked to produce more all the time. And we're sold this idea that we should be writing on blogs, we should be doing podcasts because it's good, it gets our name out there. And yet as, as labor and as intellectual labor, I think it's not properly compensated. We're expected to do this work for free um, and it often doesn't count for purposes of, of tenure and promotion. And that's a, a problem. Yeah, that's a very good way of highlighting this contradiction. Uh, they, they constantly want to squeeze more and more out of us. <laughs> but then when we do it, they often find ways to uh, not count it properly. Um, although I think it is changing to some extent, uh, even in the realm of podcasts, for instance, uh, at Simon Fraser University, uh, they, uh, they are devising a way to peer review podcasts, which is an indication of um, changes taking place from, from within. Uh, perhaps as a way to uh, bring our conversation to a close, I wanted to ask you what you're working on now, uh, your book project uh, on the history of this famous trial of white mercenaries uh, in Luanda and its implications for Cold War history and beyond. Uh, can, you, can you give us a little preview of what's, um, what's on your plate right now? Yes, I'd be delighted. As often happens in my research, once I, I come across something as I'm researching one thing and, and that sort of inspires the next thing. That's definitely what happened with radio. When I was studying music, the, the interest of musicians or the, the way they highlighted the significance of the late colonial radio station and the way they talked about listening um, secretly in hiding to the broadcasts of the MPLA really inspired my interest in the radio. Um, likewise, in studying the radio and in studying the MPLA's propaganda and how they put, trying to think about propaganda as something that gets made in a particular moment under particular circumstances and that people make decisions about and not just a, a style of broadcasting. I started to think about how the MPLA, what was their strategy? Did they have a strategy? Was there one that I could define? And in doing that, I came across, and actually in those recordings as well, I came across this trial of mercenaries in 1976. And in Angola, after independence, there are a series of other trials, mostly of diamond smugglers and things like that, that happened in the 1980s, that perhaps have more um, 
salience in, in popular memory. But I was just struck by the fact that here, you know, 13 mercenaries, British and American, had been put on trial in this massive public internationally um, kind of broadcast trial right after independence, months after independence had been declared, and yet nobody talked about it. Nobody once ever mentioned that trial to me in whatever, you know, nearly 20 years of working in Angola at that point. So I became fascinated by this, and it also resonated a lot with my interest or my experience as a young person in the mid-1980s in Washington, D.C., and this concern with U.S. intervention in Southern Africa in particular, because these guys were, were almost certainly funded in part by the CIA, even though they were recruited in England. Um, they were working for the FNLA and they were in, you know, coming in across um, what was then Zaire's border into Angola. So I just got really interested in that as a way of being able to sort of address some of those larger questions and, and my own experience of that period in time and those concerns of uh, what we called neo-imperialism essentially. And um, the trial itself is incredibly fascinating and there are traces of it all over the place. And it also included an international commission of 40 some odd uh, judges and lawyers from all over the world. And that was headed by an African-American lawyer, Lennox Hines. Um, and so I thought that was significant and important as well. And for me, part of the question was, how is it that the Angolan state, in this case, the, the MPLA run state, immediately after independence, they're fighting a civil war. How in the world do they have time to run an international trial of mercenaries? I just find that fascinating. And, and why did that seem important? How did that become a priority? And how has it become completely forgotten in Angola's contemporary history, both in public memory, um, in, in popular memory, and in terms of the, the history that the MPLA represents about itself? So that's sort of the question that I'm interested in, and I'm interested in the involvement in particular of these African-Americans on this international commission and the support of leftist African-Americans for the decolonization process and for um, in support of the sovereignty of, of newly independent African states. Well, it sounds like an amazing book. I look forward to reading it. And uh just want to thank you for all your work. Really, I think so valuable in many ways because it bridges the English speaking uh, African studies scholarship and the Portuguese speaking African st studies scholarship, which often, I think, especially in the past have not communicated very well. We have tended to operate in, in different spaces. And I think it's your work and that of uh, other scholars um, based not just in North America, but also in Europe and Africa and South America. Who are, Brazil, yeah. Yeah, they're increasingly um, making those boundaries more and more porous, and we're all the better for it. So uh, thanks so much for speaking with Africa Past and Present. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical support is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. You can stream and download all episodes on our website, afropod.aodl.org. 
You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. To get in touch, send email to alegi, that's A-L-E-G-I, at msu.edu. Thanks for listening.